0: Good morning, everyone. Would you like to hear the rest of that story? When I got back, I said, uh, how did Pastor Prince do? They said he did great, but he didn't have any socks on. (sighs) I said, well, the church he comes from, socks are optional. (laughs) We have had a great relationship. We just got back from the shore. Our, our families, our 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 wives' family has been going to the shore for 35 plus years. Um, what will always stand out in my mind? About 10 years ago, um, John and I went down separately after a Sunday evening. It's it's Saturday to Sun Sunday, or yeah, Saturday to Saturday, and so that first Sunday sometimes is a problem. We decided to stay, do our services, and take off. At night, so we left about I don't know eight or eight thirty, maybe it was even nine o'clock, and we drove. It's like a six-hour trip, and I, I think we made it in five hours that night. <clears throat> but we talked theology the whole way. It, it was the quickest trip I've I've ever uh, had, and uh, I I love your pastor because uh, I can talk to him about. Doctrine and theology, and uh, we we have a good give and take, and I uh, have always appreciated that about him. Appreciate him letting me come, the elders letting me come, and and, uh, your patience, I guess. Uh, One of the things I've started to do at our church, I I would read things. I'm kind of a. uh, I I don't know, eclectic uh, reader. I, I like to read a lot of things, and over the last decade or so, there's been more and more about creation versus evolution, and I got to the point where I thought, I can't keep this stuff to myself. So for the last almost three years now, uh, first thing we do in our worship service is I have what's called a profound moment. And I'm going to share one with you in just a, a little bit. But we, they've become so popular. They're usually three minutes or so. Uh, we actually did a Sunday Sunday evenings the month of August. Other people shared profound moments with a PowerPoint. But anyhow, I want to introduce you to uh, a little guy in just a moment. But uh, by way of introduction to the extraordinary nature of this little guy... If you've ever seen those space programs, my, my wife missed this. Uh, she said, I didn't get that first slide. You see the guy's thing is loose, this guy's reaching for him. You ever seen those space movies where somebody drifts off out into space? Let's have the next slide. They're not real. You know why they're not real? By the way, Star Trek's not real. How many of you knew that? <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> Two people raised their hand. The rest, the rest are saying, wait a minute. <clears throat> uh, the vacuum in space would force all the air in your lungs to rush out, your eardrums and capillaries would rupture, your blood would start to bubble and boil, then radiation would rip apart the DNA in your cells, which is what radiation does to you, and you'd be unconscious in 15 seconds, uh, thankfully. Uh, it would do other things to your internal organs, but as soon as the pressure uh, diminished inside of that spacesuit, that, that person is is gone. Um, and anyhow, getting back to my original point about the uh, profound moments, did you know pre- Creatures used to be the brightest guys in the community. Really, they they were. They were the scientists. And I thought, you know, we need to get back to that. So this is what we do. There is a creature that did live unassisted in space. By the way, that's not that's a real creature. Anybody know what it is? Tardigrade, also known as a water bear. Got eight legs, claws on it. I mean, it looks like a science fiction creature, but it's a real creature. But it defies evolution, and we'll see why in just a moment. Next slide. In 2007, thousands of tardigrades, water bears, were dehydrated, sent into space for 10 days. Most survived the vacuum and radioactivity of space, and when they came back, they rehydrated them, just put a drop of water on them, and they went on to live and reproduce. Now, that's a miracle if you think about what space does to us unassisted. This, this wasn't encapsulated or anything. It was just sent out on a uh, space thing. Uh, Tardigrades were discovered in 1773. Since then, we've learned that they may be dehydrated for years, and I should uh, emphasize decades. You can dehydrate this creature to less than, uh, I think it's 0.001% of its body fluid for decades. Put a drop of water on it, back in business. It's got a full circulatory system, full reproductive system. They're male and female. And uh, it's got a really uh, interesting little uh, snout for eating. Let's have the next slide. Uh, some suggest the amazing creature came from space. In fact, a lot of evolutionists got all excited and they said, well, this creature survived space, maybe that's how life got here. Uh, but, the, but the problem is their fossils are some of the oldest found on Earth, 500 million years. And by the way, these are fossils. This one is really good. You can see the internal organs. You can see the uh, eight, eight feet, uh, four on each side, the, the head. I mean... This is incredible. Go back. I want to show you what five hundred million years of evolution has done. Can you go back one sola? There's one today, and and there's one five hundred million years. Isn't it great what evolution has accomplished in five hundred million years? I've got a um, sand dollar fossilized that I picked up in Florida, dated at the University of Miami to be two hundred fifty million years old, and then I picked up one on the same trip. They're identical. And I love to give those to evolutionists and say, why hasn't this changed in 250 million years? Why hasn't the tardigrade changed in, I don't buy their dates, but if we go by their dates, 500 plus, next slide. They feed on the juice of moss and other plants, and they can endure a wide range of temperatures. 300 degrees Fahrenheit doesn't bother them, minus 458 degrees Fahrenheit doesn't bother them. This is incredible. This, this creature defies explanation in, in numerous ways. Let's see the next one. There's over 1,100 species of tardigrades. They, there's not just one kind. There's multiple kinds living in all areas of, of the earth from, from the North and South Pole to the equator. God made this creature very resilient. Let's see the last slide. This is kind of neat. Even though it makes a great pet, a tardigrade is one tough customer. Uh, People actually do keep them for pets because they're about five one-hundredths of an inch, and you can see them with a very cheap microscope. And uh, if you forget to water them, forget to feed them, just put another drop of water on them in a decade or so, and they'll, they'll come back and you can watch them again. We're in the book of John. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 12. I want to read these 11 verses. This, this is one of those passages that, to me, is a watershed. And it's probably the closest we can come to a a, a contemporary worship service. The Lord went to the temple. He, he went to synagogues and, and read from Scripture, and that's all Hebrew. But, but here we see something that might relate to the church, something that might relate to a Gentile. Uh, there's a feast given. There's a meal given. For the lord jesus and and i tend to view this passage as a as a worship service Uh, other than the last supper that he shared with those most intimate with him his disciples this comes the closest to a group of people getting together wanting to honor wanting to worship really uh, the lord jesus look with me at john chapter 12 and we're going to read uh follow with me as i read down through verse 11 then jesus six days before the passover came to bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him, that is, with Jesus. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence or denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag, where he was the treasurer, and bear what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We're we're thankful for the record we have of the life and ministry of your son. And we pray, Father, that we'd have understanding concerning the dynamics of this evening in which Jesus was to be honored, and, and yet, Father, we, we recognize the work of the enemy in in the uh, uh, statement of uh, of Judas, and we pray, Father, that we might learn, uh, both from the circumstances, the characters involved, but most of all, the way your son handled it. And I pray, Father, that we might be better worshipers as a result of having studied this passage this day. We ask that you would bless and guide us into the truth by the spirit of truth who inspired John for its... In, The Lord's name we pray. Amen. This is the last week of the Lord's life. He's got less than a week to live. And you'll notice that this occurs early in John's gospel. John gives us more details of that last week of the Lord's life than any of the other uh, gospel accounts. As his ministry comes to an end, two things are being emphasized. In fact, if you go back and look at John chapter 1, you see that John emphasized it right from the beginning. That there were those who received him and to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. And then there were those who rejected him. Almost from the outset. and, And by the way, for those of you in leadership, leadership bears a huge responsibility. Imagine if you had been a member of the Sanhedrin and you missed the Messiah. You missed the Messiah. Not only did you miss the Messiah, but you decided he needed to be murdered. You needed to kill him. You needed to get rid of him. And it's a tragedy unfolding before our eyes throughout the Gospel of John. But but here, uh, we're going to find both a deepening appreciation of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we're also going to find a steady and increasing hostility and unbelief uh, on the part of those who reject him. This contrast is clearly illustrated in the conduct of Mary and Judas. You want to give me that first slide? What's the difference between Judas and Mary? They're the primary characters here. And I think John does this on purpose, and they form a really startling contrast when it comes to worship. Now, you and I, from the time we were in Sunday school, you know, Judas is a bad guy. But you know what? Judas wasn't a bad guy when this was going on. In fact, the others had such trust in him, they they made him the treasurer. They probably, if, you know, they were going to vote on on the best liked or, you know, most likely to succeed, Judas probably would have won that. I think decades later, when John's writing this gospel, I think he remembers how he was deceived, how he was duped. I've always had a soft spot in my heart for people who warm a church pew all their life and are lost. They, they show up at worship services. They go through the motions, just like Judas. I, I marvel when I think about, you read about what the Lord's doing with his disciples, and you think about, wow, casting out demons. Preaching that the Messiah is present. Judas did all of that. He did all of that. In fact, in the next chapter, when Jesus is was washing their feet, he washed the feet of Judas. And it amazes me. And I think, how, you know, how can this be? Jesus knew his heart, just like he knows everyone's heart this morning. You know, you can sit in the back. I remember the church I grew up in, it was, it was, uh, you know, the cool thing to be in the Probably people in the back think I'm picking on them. I'm, I'm not. I'm just telling you that uh, I had a lot of cousins, a lot of family, and I believe a lot of them went to hell straight from the back of a church pew. They were in the building, but they were never apart. And I think this is a reminder to us. Judas is considered a good guy at this point in time, but we're going to see that this, this was a catalyst. This, this evening that was intended to honor Jesus was a catalyst, and he made up his mind this night he made up his mind what he was going to do. The unbelieving Judas determines here to sell Jesus. And this is done as Jesus rebukes him for his harsh words to Mary, who had lovingly, worshipfully anointed Jesus with costly spikenard. Follow as this drama of love and hate unfolds. Now, the occasion of this supper... Seems to be to honor Jesus. We're not told if Jesus appeared without invitation in Bethany or if he had been purposely invited. I tend to think he was invited because of the timing of it. Uh, but in either case, the meal was a special recognition for Jesus. In, in the first verse, John's very specific, it's six days before the Passover. And depending upon whether you think Jesus was crucified on a Thursday or a Friday, uh, that's, that's going to uh, bear on when you think this occurs. But basically, six days before the Passover uh, would have been the 8th of the first month because Passover began the uh, spiritual or sacred year for for Israel. And uh, Passover was always the 14th. The lamb was always set aside on the 10th. I believe that's what the triumphal entry is that we read about in verse 12, that the lamb, God's lamb, is being set aside. But here's a meal specifically uh, for Jesus. Now, uh, Matthew and Mark uh, record the same account, and I want you to turn and keep a finger in Matthew, keep a finger in John too, but I want you to look at Matthew's account because he gives us some insight. Uh, One of the things I've discovered is that God's Word is the best commentary on God's Word, and you can learn a great deal by looking at two parallel accounts, and that's what I'd like you to do with me. Uh, Look at Matthew 26, we're going to look at some of the backstory story here and uh, have some details filled in. And, and keep a bulletin or a finger there because we'll be coming back to refer to Matthew's account, which is very similar to Mark's account. And uh, a, a difficulty has been... Uh, assumed because the the Matthew and the Mark passages all speak about two days uh, before uh, the Passover uh, not the six that are mentioned here but it's clear when you read Matthew's account we're not going to take the time to do it but Matthew was speaking in retrospect Uh, that's why it's just two days and not six and he's offering basically a reason why Judas betrays uh, Jesus in his account and how it came to pass now the supper at Bethany uh, they're all agreed on was pivotal it's intended to pay tribute to Jesus, but it only served to polarize people further. If you're in Matthew 26, look at verse 6. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman woman having an alabaster box, of very precious ointment. Now, he doesn't give us the name of, of the woman. We know it to be Mary. And uh, we also know that the, the meal was at the house of, of Simon the leper, and we're going to comment on that in just a moment. But, uh, but I want to read between the lines a little bit This family of Martha and and Mary and Lazarus, near and dear to Jesus, unique family, one of the things that stands out is that nobody's married in that family. Martha, we're told it's her house when Luke records how... you know, she, she bursts in on, on her sister listening to Jesus and says, you know, don't you care that my, I've got all this work to do, my sister's not helping me. She's the owner of the house. It's called Martha's House. So we're assuming their parents are gone. But I got thinking about Mary. I, I often wonder if maybe she wasn't a bad girl before Jesus met her. I don't know. Other, other gospel accounts, uh, like Matthew, don't mention her name. And that could have been why. You remember the religious leaders were very scandalized by the social circle in which Jesus traveled. He would extend grace to anyone. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful for that? Anyhow, uh, come back to John with me. They made a supper for him in Bethany, and we're told in verse 1, John wants us to know that Lazarus uh, was there. Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead. Now, that happens in the previous chapter, in chapter 11. In fact, the the key verse is 43, Lazarus come forth. And uh, the other gospels say the meal was in the home of Simon the leper, which is not a contradiction, but a suggestion that the occasion was maybe a surprise for Jesus. Uh, They wanted to honor him and invited him over, but I'm guessing since Martha is serving that maybe it was planned by Martha and Mary. And I I believe others too. The The fact that Simon is called a leper and yet he's having social contact, I would guess Jesus maybe healed him at some point. I would guess that maybe there's uh, others in Bethany that had either heard his teaching or for whom he had done a miracle. And uh, I I think there were other people there besides the apostles and besides this first family and besides uh, Simon uh, the leper. Uh, Anyhow, uh, Jesus probably had more than a few friends in Bethany. And I think they were all anxious to pay tribute to him on, on this evening. Now, this this is kind of an exciting time. Try to imagine for us it might be like Christmas. It's uh, the weekend before Christmas. Christmas is going to be this Thursday. And there's all kinds of plans and preparations. In fact, as the uh, previous chapter uh, closes, notice verse 55 mentions Passover. Uh, Lazarus was raised about a month before Passover took place. And so there's already excitement building. There's... Uh, There's pilgrims coming into Jerusalem to observe the Passover. So this this was kind of a a, a big deal, if if you will. And um, this is kind of a strange thing. One of the things that the chief priests determined is with the holiday coming, they were going to bide their time. They, they didn't want a big scene at the Passover. There, there would literally be a couple million people in Jerusalem for it. In 70 AD, when uh, Titus uh, suddenly surrounded Jerusalem, it was a Passover. Josephus tells us there were 2 million-plus people in Jerusalem because of the holiday. So this was, a, this was a pretty big deal, and the religious leaders wanted to do this quietly. They wanted to do it low-key, but of course God had other plans. Uh, the number 6 in the first verse is significant, for it reminds us of the number of man. And uh, man is soon going to be seen for what he truly is, a sinner. And if you think, even for a nanosecond, there's some huge difference between you and I and Judas, there isn't. It's called the principle of sin, and it's alive and well in the flesh, all flesh. The Apostle Paul was the one that said, In my flesh dwells no good thing, and in your flesh dwells no good thing. And so we're seeing man for for what he is, uh, both having the potential to worship, as Mary does, And also having the potential to actually fight against God. Uh, Verse 2, you'll notice it says they made him a supper. Some have suggested that, that Martha may have been related to Simon. She's seen as serving in his home. Let me have the next slide there, Saul, if you would. Any number of circumstances might dictate Martha's service as this was what was in her heart. She was a servant, wasn't she? The meal was to express gratitude and praise for what Jesus had done in their midst. Lazarus was raised. Simon had probably been healed. Others had doubtlessly heard and benefited from from Christ's words and certainly his works. What a wonderful time of fellowship it must have been. And it reminds me of a worship service, or or it should. We're here for... The Lord. We're here to honor Him. We're here to worship Him. And it's a great picture of the future. And here we get a glimpse of what awaits the believer in glory. I'm going to comment on this. We, uh, I was in Sunday school in Pastor Prince's class about Revelation. We were talking about prophecy. And after the class, I said, you know, if you consider the types that are in Scripture, uh, the, the feasts of Israel, all prophetic, uh, what we see even here in this little incident, let me tell you what I'm thinking about. Uh, in our glorified state, our future activities. I think we get a scene. First of all, Lazarus. Next slide, if you would. Lazarus is seated at the table with Jesus. John makes a point of mentioning that. This is a place of honor. And, of course, he was dead. (laughs) He was dead, and he's brought back to life. Lazarus and Simon the leper typify the new man. So we see our new position, our new portion. I mean, how much clearer of a type do you need? Simon was a leper. Leprosy is a type of sin. He was healed. (laughs) Lazarus was actually dead, and not just dead for a few moments, for four days. Jesus purposely waited for four days. His sister objected when Jesus said, roll the stone away. She said, Lord, he he smells by this time. This isn't a good idea. So we see a type of the new man seated at the table with Jesus... You remember John 14, we were there this morning in Sunday school where I am, there you may be also. Jesus also says a wonderful thing in John 17, that I think we get a glimpse of here. The glory which thou, speaking to God the Father, gave us me, I have given them. Have you ever thought about your future glory? As God the Father has glorified the Son, the Son intends to glorify his own. There Lazarus is in the reflected glory of Jesus. Now the meal's in honor of Jesus, but imagine being able to sit next to him on such an occasion I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty excited to be Lazarus at this point in time. First of all, because I had been dead and now I'm alive. And now I'm an honored guest along with the Savior. Secondly, we see Martha serving, doing what she does best. Next slide, if you would. The redeemed shall have an occupation in the ages to come. We sometimes think heaven's going to be very boring and dull. I don't think so. God's got plans and purposes. They are eternal. We will be involved in them, and we see that in type here. Uh, Most people enjoy having something to do. Serving was Martha's thing. Now, she had gotten a little bit uh, out of whack with it on occasion. It had become a burden to her, but she didn't leave off serving altogether, did she? She continues on, and here we see her ministering to the one who meant so much to her. Uh, Doing something for someone you love removes all the burden completely, doesn't it? Have you ever wondered, you know, how people do certain things? i got to tell you about, uh, they're they're both with the Lord now, but I had a couple in my last church. She had Lou Gehrig's disease. They had to get up at like 6 o'clock in the morning to get to Sunday school and church. And they were in Sunday school in church until the day Helen died. And at that point, I thought, man, nobody has an excuse. Nobody. And they weren't doing it for me, and they weren't doing it for them, and they weren't doing it for their friends at church. They were doing it for the Lord. I mean, I'd ask Harry, you know, Harry, how do you do this? You know, he had to bathe his wife, he had to feed his wife, he had to, and then get himself ready and then come to church. Like, how, how do you do that? Well, you know, he loves the Lord. That's how he does it. He loves the Lord. Verse 3, Mary's introduced. And Mary's action depicts unstinted worship. Next slide, if you would. Throughout the ages to come, the saints will worship the one who purchased them. If you're still following with me with Lazarus being a type of the new man, Martha serving, and now we have Mary worshiping. I think this all is a depiction and type of the future in the ages to come. Have you ever thought about what worship will be like in an ideal setting? Uh, I'm sure you've covered it in your study of the book of Revelation. But uh, I don't think we can really connect with it. We're still sinners. We have a hard time, our best efforts. But I think, man, when we're delivered from the penalty and the presence and the prospect, the possibility of sin, won't that be wonderful to be able to worship in that sort of atmosphere? What will it be like? Mary's act is central. It's unselfish completely unselfish. It's costly. It is glorifying to the Lord. And uh, one final thought on worship before we leave this. It satisfies as nothing else. It satisfies as nothing else. And I'm talking about actually rendering worship to Jesus, not an emo- emotional high that you or I might or might not get, but rendering a worship to Jesus. One more thing about Mary, I got to tell you this because it's kinda neat. She appears three times in Scripture and each one of the times speaks of one of the offices of Christ. The first time she appears with her sister, she's at the feet of Jesus and uh, Jesus is seen in the role of prophet. He's teaching her. Second time she appears, Jesus shows up, her brother's dead. She comes to him and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And it's kind of a left-handed appeal and a rebuke, and we see Jesus there as priest, intercessor, and here, as she anoints him, we see him in his role as king. Mary appears three times, and it speaks of the three offices of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me, if you will, um, at the next... Uh, well, let's, let's continue on a, a little bit uh, about, the, about the present... Like Lazarus, the believers now seated in the heavenlies with Christ, according to Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. We've got a perfect standing with God positionally in Christ. Uh, we are to serve Christ now while on earth, representing him in the world as ambassadors, revealing him to a lost world. Finally, we are to be worshipers, learning more of him, beholding more of his glory, giving praise to the one who loved us with an everlasting love. It's probable that Mary told no one of her plans. That's why I kind of picture this like Christmas you ever been really excited about a gift that you knew someone would really enjoy, benefit from, and it was a complete secret? Nobody knew about it. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on here. From the time she came to believe in Jesus as Messiah, I think she had been saving. She used her money to, to purchase this expensive oil. It was going to be a, a token of her love. And we're told later that the value of this was nearly a, a, a day's wages. In fact, Matthew 22 tells us a penny a day or a denarii a day was a typical wage, so 300 denarii would be like a year's worth of, uh, of, of savings, if you would. On the night of the supper, she's determined to lavish her gift upon Jesus. And the seventh verse uh, shows us she was keeping this for a future time, but in God's plan, it would be used to honor Christ before his death. Uh, Chuck Swindoll has a saying, let's break the box. And it's a reference to this story, you know, to go all out for God. Let's break the box. That's what she did. Uh, We're told it was an alabaster box that was broken. Uh, Let's see the next slide if we can. The house was filled with fragrances. Mary anoints the Lord. She bears witness of his value as a person. Now, both Matthew and Mark record how she broke the box containing the ointment, typifying the broken body of the Lord. The other Gospels uh, only mention the Lord's, uh, not only mention the Lord's head, but they uh, mention his, his feet. Uh, as, 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 uh, as well as his head and uh, here Mary's humility is depicted before the Master that's what's in John's mind so he just mentions the Lord's feet not, not his head as well and then wiping the Lord's feet with her hair further act of, uh, of honor before him uh, and humility for her long hair being in that day uh, a glory to the woman as Paul comments on 1 Corinthians 11 uh, Mary is the quintessential worshiper. And I often wonder how much she discerned of the Lord's glory and, and, and uh, who, who he was and, and what's about to happen. Jesus says she's anointing me in preparation for my burial. I, I wonder if she had a bad omen, like, you know, this isn't going to work out the way everybody's thinking. Now, the Lord's disciples are ecstatic that things are coming to a head. Uh, Jesus is going to present himself as king uh, in, in just a day or two. Uh, but Mary seemed to, to know something the others uh, uh, didn't. So then the house is filled with fragrance. Uh, Spike Nerd comes from India. It's a warm, woody, resinous uh, odor, and uh, nobody speaks a word. Th- this is what's kind of neat about this worship the act is silent. It's an act of complete devotion and love, but it's, it's silent. But the house is filled with its effects what a wonderful depiction of those quiet works we do for the Lord the things nobody hears about, very few know of often we think such things are unnoticed, unimportant but you know these are the very things that fill the house with a sweet fragrance you've experienced and I've, I've experienced it, you go into a church and there's an atmosphere there, where does the atmosphere come from? I, I would suggest it comes from worship or lack thereof it comes from you guys it comes from the reason why you're here. It comes from whether or not you're open to God's teaching, God's spirit, God's leading in your lives. Every church has a personality. Every church's personality is a little different. And by the way, it has very little to do with uh, denominational affiliation or the, or the name you put out on the sign. It has a lot more to do with what's going on in the, in the hearts and minds of those who are uh, members and who are making the thing go. The house was filled with a, with a fragrance. Mary didn't come... This is kind of neat. Mary didn't come to hear a sermon this night, even though some of the greatest speakers, obviously the Lord, and His disciples were present, but she didn't go that night to hear a great teacher or preaching of, uh, of any of the disciples. She didn't come to make her requests as she once did when she fell before the Lord and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. She had no request to make this night. Mary's desire was not to meet with the saints Although I'm sure she was close with Simon and some of the others, maybe some of the other apostles she had a unique relationship with, uh, we don't know, but uh, I'm sure it was a very friendly atmosphere. And there were some very precious people present. She didn't even attend the supper to be refreshed after a week's toil and battling in the world. That's been one of the hardest things I've had to communicate to our church people. Church suppers aren't about the food. What a revolutionary idea! You know, the first time I saw people showing up with what looked like to me garbage can lids, I realized they're probably not getting the purpose of this. Probably not getting it. It wasn't about the meal. So why did Mary show up? The greatest teacher present, greatest preachers, no request to make, not there for the food. She was there simply to express her love to the one who filled her soul. I often think, wouldn't it be great if we came to church once in a while just for Jesus? (laughs) Just for Jesus. No other reason. That's it. Look at verse 4. I don't know if you know this, but uh, the most faithful worshiper you have in this church, I know in my church, is the devil. And he deplores devotion like this. He hates it. He detests it. He's not going to let it go by unchallenged. So he doesn't, he, he doesn't remain silent. Then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. John's giving us an editorial comment, a little bit of the backstory here. The murmuring of Judas right after the worship of Mary is highly significant. Highly significant. Judas had no love for Jesus. He had been with him for years, but he didn't really love him. Therefore, it was impossible for him to appreciate what had been done for Jesus. You see, if you don't love Jesus, you don't get it. You just wonder, you know, you can't believe how many people in my family to this day, they have no idea why I'm in the ministry. You know, they say, you could have done a lot of other things with your life, and what they don't say is that would have been better. (laughs) That's what they leave out, but they, you know, they don't get it. See, if somebody doesn't love Jesus, they, they don't get it. And that even applies for people inside of the church as well as outside of the church. And make no mistake, there's always people in the church that don't really love Jesus. There, there always are. Jesus called them tares. And the devil sees that they're there because he sows them. He provides. He has Judas here. Matthew records, come back there with me if you will, this is pretty neat. In verse 7, there came to him a woman with a precious ointment. Now notice verse 8, when his disciples saw, they had indignation. Now all the disciples are mentioned there. Now, John tells us where it started. Guess who started that? Guess who started that gossip? This night that Jesus is going to be worshiped. This night that Jesus is going to be honored. We've got a fault finder. You ever run across the fault finder? doesn't matter how great the evening is. They don't like it. They don't like it. So the devil has his man. The man starts to gossip. By the way, gossip doesn't have to be uh, false. It can, it can be true and still be gossip. So John tells us who puts this poison in the minds of the others. It reminds us we need to be careful who we listen to. By the way, why do you think it was still so clear in John's mind decades later? I think he was one of those that got sucked in. It's easy to get sucked in. Somebody you like, family member, they say something, you start thinking, yeah. And on the surface, this makes a little sense, doesn't it? Hey, aren't we for missions? Aren't we for missions? What a waste. You're doing that for Jesus? That's a waste. Well, that's bad theology, and no, it's not a waste. And uh, he had it backwards, didn't he? He had it backwards. Let me see the next slide here where we are. Used to spread discord. Good. Judas would turn everyone's attention away from Jesus. Look at verse 5. Why wasn't this ointment sold for for a year's wages given to the poor? You know, there's many noble causes in the world, including helping the poor, feeding the hungry. I, I get all that. But you see, anything that turns people away from Jesus, there's lots of quote-unquote Christian groups, drilling wells, building hospitals, building roads. Those things are necessary, and they're good. But you know what? If the gospel's not in there, what good is it? What good is it? Interesting. 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 You see, anything that turns us from the worthiness of Jesus, that becomes an idol. By the way, this is just lately. How many of you read about the uh, World Vision missionary in Palestine funneling funds to Hamas for the last two decades? 10, 20 million, they're guessing, has gone to Hamas. World Vision. And that was, uh, by the way, it was the Israeli Mossad that uh, found him out. I think about all the Christians back home, yeah, World Vision's a great program. They're really doing something there, and their money's going for terrorism. Amazing. Amazing. So Judas criticizes, and this is the criticism of a covetous soul, Judas' notion of waste crude and material. By the way, I I did a study on Judas uh, not too long ago. Uh, There's two two things. Back up in verse 4, and this happens all the time. Every time Judas is mentioned, his father's mentioned Judas' son of Simon. Now I get it, there might have been lots of Judases, and so this is characterizing him, but how would you like to be this boy's dad? His name is mentioned six times in John's Gospel. Dad, you've got a huge responsibility. Huge responsibility. By the way, Ishkariot, Ish is a man, he's the man from Kirioth. Even the town he was raised in is mentioned every time he's mentioned. Because he is the quintessential bad guy. We, we know that now. But we don't understand the subtlety uh, many times of it. Let me see the next slide there. Spirit of Judas does not appreciate the will or the word of Jesus. Doesn't get it. Judas had been with Jesus for years. Look at verse 6. And yet the love of money ruled in his heart. John gives us an editorial comment. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. Those types of believers are still with us. They give the Lord miserly recognition. Miserly recognition. They treat themselves extravagantly, and so often uh, they attempt to hide their greed under the pretense of benevolence, which is incredible to me. By the way, these are the first words of Jesus. Of reco- Jesus, these are the first words of Judas recorded in Scripture, and they are telling. Are they not? They are telling. John records a personal observation about Judas in verse six that he was the treasurer, but notice he says he was a thief. Isn't that funny? Ministry and financial scandal It goes all the way back to the first century, which is why churches need to be very, very careful. We've got uh, two people counting the money. We've got checks and balances every which way so nobody can even make an accusation. There would have to be a huge conspiracy for something to go wrong. Evidently, uh, Judas was good at juggling figures when he made the treasurer's report. And this implies, by the way, uh, this is just kind of an aside, the field or the estate which Judas purchased that... Peter makes reference to in Acts 118 is not the same as the field that the religious leaders bought with the money that he threw back at their feet. I think after Judas was gone, they realized, hey, he had been holding out, we got this huge amount of money, what do we do with it? And they bought a field. Often the field uh, here is confused with uh, the one mentioned in Matthew 27. The money taken for betraying Jesus was returned. How very subtle and crafty Judas must have been to disguise his love of money All these years from everybody else, you never really know somebody else, do you? God does, but we don't. Look at verse 7. Jesus cuts short the criticism and is often seen here as the good shepherd who protects his own. He cuts the criticism short. It's great. Let her alone against the day of my burying. He understood what was going on and the others are filled in. I wonder, you know, Mary's moved to honor Jesus and, and you just wonder if she knew what was, what was happening. Now, here's, here's kind of an interesting aside. Uh, Matthew and Mark add that Mary's anointing would reflect well on her forever in perpetuity. Here we are today, 2,000 years later. We're still studying about this act of worship and honor that Mary performed. Isn't that amazing? She did this one-time act, and she will be remembered for forever. Have you ever thought about your Christian service in that way? You should. You should. The things we do for the Lord that are of a brief moment, short time, it will mean something down the road in perpetuity. Look at verse 8. There's a small point in the Greek, and it is worth noting because it triggers subsequent events. In verse 7, when Jesus has let her alone, the text reads, you, singular, let her alone. You see, with the verb in the Greek, the person is always there, whether it's singular or plural. This is the second person, singular. You, leave her alone. He spoke directly to Judas, and Judas didn't like that. By the way, I don't know what your pastor's experience has been, but my experience has been whenever I have to speak to someone that way because they're wrong, and I've had to do it on occasion. I hate doing it, and I know what's going to happen 90% of the time. They're going to do exactly what Judas did. They're going to get upset with me, and they're going to come after me. I could tell you stories, put your hair on end, but we're just about done. But uh, Judas determines right here, right now, he's going to betray Jesus. Come back to uh, Matthew with me. I want you to see that. Matthew. We finish. We've been reading 6 through 13. And uh, Jesus says, you know, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done is going to be a memorial. Then notice verse 14. Judas went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me if I deliver him to you? You see, that was the catalyst for Judas. Being confronted. Being seen through. Being told he was wrong and out in left field, he didn't like that. And his pride couldn't tolerate it. It could not abide it. And I think what really irritated him, it was in front of other people. This big happy gathering, of course, he's the first one to rain on the parade, but Jesus did not tolerate it. He said, you leave her alone. And Judas said, that's it. I'm going to get even with you, buddy. Well, he did. He, He got even. I think about the psalmist that says, even the wrath of man shall praise thee. Judas is playing a part, isn't he? Not even aware of it. The message here has to do with opportunity. We'll not always have the opportunity to serve, not always have the opportunity to love the Lord Jesus. How did God create you to serve? That's a great question to ask. You know, Judas was doing all these things all for nothing. (laughs) Mary, Martha... Lazarus, they all served. You've been uniquely created to serve, to worship. And we're not always going to have the opportunity. Life is brief. Life is brief. The opportunities we have to serve are brief. I'll never forget my, uh, the second church I was in. Uh, the, the ladies had put together Thanksgiving baskets for shut-ins. I brought this basket to this guy who was dying of black lung. He was home but on oxygen and he couldn't, couldn't get up. And uh, I, I thought I'll visit with him for a while. I was, I was at the end of the route, and he said, boy, I wish I could do what you're doing. And I'm thinking, be a preacher? Like, what, you know, what, what do you mean? And he goes, you know, deliver baskets. And I, <laughs> you know, delivering baskets is no big deal. You just have to have a vehicle, you know. Delivering, but he goes, I wish I could do what you're doing, because you know what, he's laying there, and he's realizing he can't do anything anymore. can't do anything anymore. And he's laying there thinking about probably what he should have been doing. Hmm. You don't want to come to that point, going into eternity, wishing that you had done more. Look at verse 9. In all probability, the meal served to Jesus took place on Friday evening. And uh, you and I have to get this straight because being Gentiles, we don't get it. Uh, They got there during daylight, but as soon as the sun went down, that's Sabbath for them. That would be their Saturday Sabbath. When Melody and I were in Israel, I was, I was telling John, uh, it's, it's crazy. Fr- Friday night comes, 6 o'clock, everything shuts down. Uh, place is desolate, nothing, till Saturday evening. That's their Sabbath, sundown to sundown. That's, that's the Genesis way of reckoning time. So I think he got there at sundown, fr- what we would call Friday evening, which is Saturday the Sabbath. Uh, the next day would be the Sabbath until sundown, and Jesus most probably remained in the village of Bethany. And that's why we have this reference to people coming in verse 9. They knew he was there, and they didn't want to just see Jesus anymore. They wanted to see Lazarus. Now, this would be the pilgrims coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They're hearing the story about this guy that was raised from the dead. So they wanted to see both of them. They wanted to see this rabbi who was a fabulous teacher that maybe they had heard another time before. They had certainly heard things about him, so they're showing up. Which would make then uh, verse twelve. The next day would be uh, Sunday, and that's how I figure it because I believe the Lord was crucified on a Thursday. And any um, any well thir- Thursday for us it would have been Thursday afternoon uh, Sabbath right before the Sabbath at sundown. What an exhibition of human nature, curiosity, curiosity. They wanted to see. Look at verse 10. Lazarus became a real sore spot for the religious leaders. His association with Christ was an element in the unfolding of the hatred against Jesus. Uh, Notice it says the chief priests, and no mention is made of the Pharisees. Chief priests were mostly Sadducees, and Sadducees denied the resurrection. So here you got a living proof that your doctrine is wrong. But instead of changing your doctrine, let's kill the guy. Isn't that great? Let's just get rid of him. If we kill him, then we can keep our doctrine. Amazing. And uh, the rest of the Sanhedrin thought in a very similar way. Anyone who trusts Christ, what we see in Lazarus is what's going to happen to the modern-day believer. If you begin to manifest the same qualities of righteousness, that new life that you have, goodness, holiness, <laughs> that's going to fly in the face of this corrupt world system, and suddenly you won't be too popular either. Let's finish. Look at verse 11. Because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Isn't that neat? Because of Lazarus, there were people believing on Jesus. Wouldn't it be neat if because of you, there were people that will be in eternity? Those who become Christ's ambassadors will be the means by which God will draw people unto his son. Lazarus living out his new life, just his existence, was a powerful witness and testimony to the power and grace of a loving Savior. May all the redeemed draw men to Jesus as Lazarus did. May all the redeemed serve Jesus as Martha did. May all the redeemed worship Jesus with the devotion of Mary. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder of who and what you are and your plans.